It's Sunday morning, and I'm in the Church of the Holy Mary, Mother of God. It's a Ukrainian Catholic church in Salford on Berenue Road. And I'm a few minutes late, so I come in and, and this service is already underway. Turns out being late isn't a problem because it's going to go on for the best part of two hours. So I've missed a relatively small amount of the service. And every few minutes a little kind of kid scurries in who's also late or a, a young couple come in and take their seats. And right in front of me, down the aisle, there's this very beautiful painted screen, like, you, like a lot of churches, I think, used to have, and, and not many have anymore. And the church is pretty packed, and one of the women in, in the back row has a Ukrainian flag over her shoulders. And this service is full of, you know, what sounds to us like sort of Gregorian chant, but sort of congregational singing led by the priest. The only thing that's different is that in the front row... Andy Burnham, the mayor of Grace from Manchester, is sitting next to the mayor of Salford, Paul Dennett. And at the back, there are journalists from ITV and from the Press Association, from the BBC, who are shooting this service from the back. At the end of this mass, Andy Burnham stands up where the priest was standing, speaks to this congregation of Ukrainians and British Ukrainians and Brits who've got Ukrainian heritage, and says, I'm here to show the support of the people of Greater Manchester for you. He says, in the face of an evil act of aggression, a crime against humanity, there needs to be a proper response. This is the Manchester Weekly from the Mill. Hello, I'm Daryl Morris. Welcome to the Manchester Weekly from the Mill. Alongside me as ever, Yoshi Herman, the editor of The Mill, the quality newspaper for Manchester delivered by email. Yoshi, on last week's podcast, we had the reaction, the shock and the heartbreak to the events unfolding in Ukraine from the Ukrainian community and beyond. This week, in a sense, the response. Yes, we've got a really interesting interview with a guy called Tony Redmond, who is the founder of UK Med, this organisation that's based in Manchester and that has just sent a team of medics and other professionals out to Poland and Ukraine to help. And I think that's a great person to hear from for us. A, Tony is someone who's been going to war zones, earthquakes, disasters for decades. He's kind of one of the pioneers of emergency medicine, as mill readers who read a profile about him a few months ago will know. But also, you're hearing from people at the border, you're hearing in the news, the emerging crisis, the big bit of aid that people really want to prioritise is medical. It's this emerging medical disaster where hospitals are running out of supplies, refugees are incredibly cold at night, mothers are coming into labour in circumstances that are completely horrifying. So I think it's great for us to hear from someone who just knows this area totally mm. and can tell us about this important response and that allows our listeners, I think, to donate to one of the most effective bits of support they can. OK, we'll hear from Tony in a moment. Really, really powerful. You're right. Getting a sense of how Manchester are helping on the ground. You were at that church service then at the weekend, Yoshi, and... We heard from your uh, your quote there of what Andy Burnham said. You know, one of the things that struck me and I think has probably been rattling around the head of a lot of people is, you know, what can we do to help? What can we actually do? You know, as that sort of shock and heartbreak that we were reflecting on last week's podcast turns this week to a sense of determination to want to try to do something about it. You look at what Andy Burnham said in those comments. You feel just being here today is the complete sense of resolve and of determination. Uh, amongst the, the congregation, really moving, Paul, wasn't it? At the end, Absolutely. when people were singing, uh, you know, together, you know, and the tears streaming down a few faces, you know, you just can't begin to imagine what it must feel like to have 
family over there and friends and then going to bed every night here just wondering whether you will be able to reach them. What does that mean really, Yoshi? I think it's really difficult to work out exactly what Greater Manchester can do. Andy Burnham talked about not being a fair-weather friend to the Ukrainian people, offering long-term support, putting pressure on the government to take more economic sanctions. He even said, you know, things like the no-fly zone shouldn't be off the table, which is quite a radical remark to make. But I think a lot of people are struggling now working out what they can really do. We sent Danny down to a donations collection centre in Bury, and the volunteers there said, we have got so much stuff coming in, we are inundated, we've barely got time to speak to you. What we're actually lacking is drivers to get this stuff to this other centre so that it can be taken over to the border and on the Polish-Ukrainian border. So they are overflowing with stuff. Outside the church, I met one of the leaders of the Ukrainian community in Manchester who said that there's, they have been so inundated with sort of household items and the regular things that people donate that they're now asking people to donate to a charity called Ukraine Aid, which is essentially just passing money to the military and kind of bits of equipment that the military use. So they've just been buying these really expensive thermal imaging kits. They've been sending um, bits of medical equipment out to, to help the military. He said, you know, there's no point in everyone donating to Ukraine if there isn't a country left because of, uh, you know, a big military defeat. So that was his perspective on it. I think from Andy Burnham's perspective, there was a kind of sense that Sure, as the mayor of, of a great city like Manchester, you can offer your solidarity to your fellow mayors ac across Ukraine. You can sort of mobilise a public message, which is that a city like Manchester, an area like Greater Manchester, stands with people in Ukraine. But I did get the sense from the lack of specifics that, you know, really, this is a difficult one. My sense... And, and I think that's why it's so good that we're speaking to Tony on this podcast, is that the really important bit of support that people can offer, the piece of aid that is kind of really, really becoming more and more necessary by the day is this medical stuff. And we can hear more about that from him. OK, let's do that now then, shall we? And as Yoshi says, get a sense of how Manchester is playing a part on that front. UK Med is an organisation that was founded some years ago by Tony Redmond, OBE. They work in emergencies, disaster zones, war zones, all around the world, and this is, of course, no different. We can speak to Professor Tony Redmond, OBE, now. Tony, hi. Hi, how do you do? Really well, Tony. Thank you for being with us. Tony, take us onto the ground, if you will, your team working in and around this conflict. What are your team doing? When we respond to, to any emergency, we send out an advanced team who will do an immediate assessment of needs to make sure we get the right things to the right people. And importantly, we make links with people already on the ground, the local people. If aid is to be most effective, it has to integrate with what the local people are doing. It has to integrate into local health systems. So we have five people in country now, there are more on the way, moving between the Polish border and into Western Ukraine. So they've established links with the Ministry of Health. They've also met up with our partner, Polish Emergency Medical Team. We made this partnership before the war, quite fortuitously, as it turns out. So we partnered with them and we are setting up a mobile clinic on the border to help the refugees. And then also the teams being going in and out of Western Ukraine, trying to find the best place 
for our support to have most effect. And as more people are mobilized and go out, they will run the clinic on the border and they will run a clinic uh, within Ukraine. That's really interesting. It says on your website that you are seeing hospitals are running low on critical supplies, including oxygen, medication and painkillers. Can you tell us what else you're hearing from your people? I know they've only just sort of entered Ukraine here in Poland before. There are three elements to health needs in any crisis. Mm. The first is the direct effect of the emergency itself. So in this inner conflict, it's obviously treating the wounded. And we have a a trauma surgeon there already assessing those needs and working with with local surgeons. Then there are coincidental emergencies that carry on anyway. So the refugees will still develop acute medical conditions. Women will still go into labour. There'll still be problems with delivering babies. Children will, will be ill. And so you need to support those. And that's what our clinic on the border will be doing and we'll also look to have mobile clinics that will work around and between uh, all the refugees and then the third element is that chronic diseases still need treating and in any major emergency but particularly in a conflict the normal health services are disrupted Mm. and sometimes stop altogether so people with chronic health conditions even if that's high blood pressure but in particular diabetes for example we have to get insulin supplies in we have to be able to maintain people's health and of course you've seen the difficulties with children whose cancer treatment has been interrupted i know that poland has a very well-developed cancer treatment facility and they are accommodating within their own system the children who are coming in from ukraine but they're the elements that we will be monitoring and uk med tony came out of a south manchester service didn't it it did yeah could you give give us a bit of background tony as to the organization how it developed and where its roots are in manchester yeah, its roots were, were in Withington and Withingshaw hospitals. Withington Hospital as an acute hospital it, it is no more. But I was director of A&E services, an A&E consultant there in the late 80s. And we set up a pre-hospital care team to treat emergencies outside of the hospital. When I operated on somebody on the A34, I remember when they were impaled on the central reservation. So we had experience of delivering acute specialist care, if you like, in support of emergency services outside of the hospital, but only within the Manchester area. But then in 1988, we were asked to go and support the international response to the earthquake in Armenia, which was a huge earthquake with tens of thousands of people killed and hundreds of thousands of people injured. And we we went out and we worked there in the earthquake and then it, on the way back, we were diverted to the Lockerbie Air Disaster, uh, where I was site medical officer. And so within one month at the end of 1988, we'd moved from being a local rescue team, surgical team, into responding to large-scale emergencies, national emergencies and international emergencies. And from there, we just expanded. When we worked in Bosnia throughout the war, and particularly we had teams rotating in and out of Sarajevo during the the war, uh, that we had to draw our staff from beyond Manchester. The need for healthcare workers was so great, it couldn't be met by people being seconded 
from just the Manchester area. So we expanded it then and became UK Med. And that model of working closely with the NHS and, and people drawn from outside of the NHS being rotated out to a range of emergencies has continued. And we've worked in every major earthquake since 1988. We've responded to volcanic eruptions, cholera outbreaks, conflicts, as I say, in Bosnia, Gaza, the civil war in Sierra Leone, Kosovo. And until this, we were working involved with uh, supporting the international response to COVID, working in over 20 countries. And even as we're doing this, we still have a team going out to the Solomon Islands to support their response to COVID. Tony, I think my final question is this. You've been doing this for so long, for decades. As you say, you've done conflicts in Sierra Leone, you've done Kosovo, Bosnia. Does any part of you sitting here in Manchester, or I think it's Stockport, does any part of you think, I would like to be out there helping in this particular conflict now that war has come to Europe? Of course it does. It's difficult for me because I was very badly injured in my last deployment. I got spinal fractures. And so I I have difficulties with uh, mobilisation now. I use a stick and I've got to balance what I would like to do to help people with what sort of liability I might be in these circumstances. But yes, I would love to go. Tony, you're a remarkable man and your organisation does absolutely remarkable work. It's been a real privilege to talk to you and to, to hear those stories and thank you for the work you do. Thank you. Thank you for your support. So if readers want to know more about Tony and the organisation, they should go and read our piece from a few months ago, Manchester's Disaster Doctor Looks Back, which is an amazing feature about Tony and the organisation. And if listeners want to contribute to UK Med's work over in Ukraine, they've now got a Ukraine appeal. You just need to go to www.uk-med.org forward slash Ukraine hyphen appeal. Yeah, and I can guarantee your money will get to those who need it most. Thank you, Tony. Thank you very much. Okay, elsewhere, Yoshi, there is a story about buses flying around this week that might seem and sound really boring, but actually is quite important and very consequential as well. A ruling this week. Yeah, this is a really significant ruling, which basically means that Andy Burnham's attempt to re-regulate the bus system here, to turn back these decades of deregulation, and to allow companies to bid for franchises, but not just to choose their routes, choose their fares, and sort of have freedom like a sort of the Wild West system that we've got at the moment, that that plan is legal. So this was a challenge brought by two of the bus companies, who were challenging the the legality of Burnham's move. And what it does is it effectively allows not just Greater Manchester, but also these other areas who are looking looking at this, like the Liverpool City region, South Yorkshire Combined Authority, who also want to do this with their buses. It effectively gives them a green light. And throughout the process of Andy Burnham trying to re-regulate these buses, bring them under public control, as as it's called. There was always a nervousness, you could tell, among the people working at the Greater Manchester Combined Authority, the Transport for Greater Manchester, that they might say something in their documents or publicly that would look like they were kind of prejudging Andy Burnham's decision about this, which was supposed to be a sort of impartial decision, even though he clearly wanted this to happen. And that they were nervous because of the possibility of legal challenge. And today kind of must be a big relief for them. Mm. It's a very significant thing. What I think people have to remember, though, is that the big thing that people talk about with bus reform 
is fares, right? Sure, it's going to be easier if, if everything's in one system. Uh, sure, it will have um, a better selection of routes because it won't just be the, the most profitable routes running. But if you want London-style fares, you're going to need an enormous amount of London-style subsidy. And that hasn't been promised. And, you know, when I spoke to Sir Richard Leeds, the former leader of Manchester City Council, about this, he was open about the fact there is not a promise of funding from the government that would allow us to put fares down to London levels. And I think if people end up with a bus system that they've had to pay more taxes for, which they will, where the combined authority have bought up a bunch of bus depots, have taken on an enormous amount of administrative cost, if they don't also have lower fares, I think it'll be seen as a huge disappointment. Mm. So this is one staging post in the battle, but it's certainly not any sort of guarantee that we're going to end up with a London-style transport system. And it's a key that unlocks a door, isn't it, right, to sort of to the next phase of this process more than anything else? Yeah, that's right. And the, the big concern, I think, is that bus traveller numbers are really low at the moment, and a lot of the calculations had to be redone because of the pandemic. Mm, mm. There's a huge amount of uncertainty about this. I think there's a lot of excitement about it. They're recalculating what are the plans going to look like based on what life looks like after the pandemic. Is that right then? They've tried to do that. Obviously, huge questions about that because we don't know what life is going to be Because like. people aren't travelling to the places they used to in the same numbers. The rhythm of life in Greater Manchester is very different to how it was when this plan was proposed. Exactly. I mean, the, the big hope with this kind of plan is that if buses become cheaper, they become more reliable and you can use one ticket across all the different services, then you are more likely to use the bus and you and your partner and your friends are more likely to get into the habit of using a bus and you can maybe as a family have one car instead of two cars or zero cars instead Mm -hmm. of one car Mm -hmm. and that it will unclog the roads that more and more people will want to use buses and that the efficiency of the service the improvement to the service will increase bus usership but you know that's hypothetical we'll have to see if that really happens we all we've all been to cities where including london where transport's much better and a lot more people use it so Mm -hmm. it's 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 a fair assumption but there are huge questions over the future of of transport in greater manchester and i think this is a a significant day tell you what i saw today i was coming to victoria and they were testing how to get people in a wheelchair down the stairs to the platform 14 which is all the trains that go you know across to liverpool across to sheffield because the facilities at these stations across greater manchester for disabled people are so disgracefully shocking Mm. that they're you know it, it looked like some sort of medieval process where they're trying to bring this guy down on you know he wasn't a passenger I think he was a member of staff they were testing it mm. and I was like where's the lift oh, lift lifts closed where's the normal thing that people have to get on the ridiculous thing that you know to get down the stairs oh yeah that's not working either across our transport system if you are in a wheelchair or if you have a disability it's unbelievably difficult to get around in Greater Manchester much worse than other bits of the country and that's another big thing we need to fix so this is a system that requires an enormous amount of investment and if an enormous amount of it is directed towards buses then maybe that bit of the system can improve okay uh, watch this space we'll keep an eye on that story and as it develops i am uh, obliged yoshi whenever i broadcast or do a podcast or a radio show to crowbar in mentions of bottle wanderers um at every possible opportunity we've never mentioned them criminally so far i actually haven't okay. i actually haven't when we were considering that we would do this story this week i was thinking i, I haven't filled my quota of mentioning <laughs> bottle wanderers at all on the, the Manchester Weekly. Finally, I have an opportunity because a rally that was planned by Nigel Farage's new campaign group, you may have seen this in the last couple of days or so, calling themselves Vote Power Not Poverty, that was due to take place at the stadium, now won't. Is that right? This was a rally that was going to, that was clearly scheduled there. 
There must have been some sort of social media backlash. I mean, Daryl, you're, you're the Wanderers fan. You tell me. Yeah, I guess that's what's happened. Nigel Farage is, of course, a very divisive figure, and Vote Power, Not Poverty is their new, ca- his sort of new campaign alongside Richard Tice, who you'll probably know from his sort of Brexit Party movement as well. This is a big campaign. This is their next big campaign, which is a referendum on the government's net zero environmental policy commitment. Mm. And so it's political movement. But Bolton Wanderers have an, and, and Bolton Wanderers is an in, in, important point as well at the stadium University of Bolton Stadium or the Macron Stadium as it was called have hosted UKIP rallies before and Brexit Party rallies before I think David Cameron did a speech there as a Conservative Party leader I think Labour Party events have taken place there as well so that, it has happened there has been a history of political events at the stadium but does is the difference now when I was growing up in Bolton in the Premier League it was called the Reebok yes the Reebok right? yeah. yeah and now it's called the University of Bolton Stadium isn't it yeah so it if you've got the name of a university on the stadium, you can't be associating with people who don't believe in net zero and, and, and that kind of thing. Is that partly what's going on? Here? Yeah, that probably is actually. Yeah, it's a really good point. I hadn't considered that. Yeah, mm. University of Bolton's name is all over it. That will presumably be on their flyers as well, and that would probably make the University of Bolton kind of uncomfortable, regardless, yeah. I, I would imagine, of, of what the, the, the politics is. Mm. I also think this is a really interesting moment in this club's history, and we have new owners, the Football Ventures Group, led by Sharon Briston took the club over a couple of years ago and they haven't been afraid to take stand. They haven't been afraid to tell us what they think about things. Last year, Sharon Briston made headlines when she banned gambling kiosks. There's been a big movement in football, in sport particularly, against gambling and hooking fans into gambling. And Sharon Briston has spoken openly before about the fact that she had a partner that was addicted to gambling and was abusive, etc. So she's been really open about that part of her life. And clearly it meant a lot to her. She clearly didn't want the football club that she runs to be perpetuating something that she saw as a problem. You know, whether this is a stand against Farage or a stand against Richard Tice or a stand against uh, the idea of, of a referendum against Net Zero, I think that would probably be to overread it. I wouldn't be surprised that if the Labour Party or the Tory Party or the Lib Dems went knocking on their door, they'd probably get the same response. But it's clearly a football club now who care about their image, who care about their place in the community, who are um, taking on a different role to the role that this business played in the community before and it's been welcomed by a lot of fans because I suppose it's a commitment to something bigger and purer than cashing in on things that are divisive or unhelpful. If you want more Bolton Wanderers content, head over to The Wanderer, Daryl's Bolton podcast. It's hey, on the BBC website. Is thanks. that correct? Yes, thank you for that. I appreciate that. Gosh, I feel very flattered. Uh, yes, The Wanderer podcast, available on BBC Science. <laughs> <laughs> and Yoshi, finally for this week, this is something that you can, I've done some explaining to you, you can explain to me. How and why have you caused a major storm about, about a statue in Manchester? What happened? Look, what happened was... I was writing our Monday briefing. You know, we do a big story. We normally have one story in focus. So I got an email that morning about 11am from a reader. And the reader said, I've just written to Bev Craig, leader of Manchester City Council, about the Friedrich Engels statue next to home, the uh, the theatre and art gallery and, and cinema. And the reason he was complaining about the statue is that it was originally brought from eastern Ukraine. It was in a small village. It was torn down in, I believe, 2015, which was a year after the last Russian invasion. 
when this statue was put up, there was a small but sort of vocal constituency of people who felt that it was inappropriate to bring what was effectively a piece of Soviet propaganda. You know, this was not put up by sort of fans of Friedrich Engels specifically. It was, you know, Friedrich Engels in his guise as a icon of sort of communism. It was put up in a country where there was a repressive Soviet regime and it was torn down by the citizens of that country. And then it was kind of brought here as a piece of artwork. Bringing it here was kind of a part of the, the, the artwork by an artist called Phil Collins. There was this slight controversy in 2017 when it was brought here. And I think, you know, the person who was objecting was saying, you know, is it appropriate for us to have a piece of Soviet propaganda that was pulled down by Ukrainians and it's brought here? He asked that question. There were not a lot of people asking about it. I led the, the briefing on it because I thought it was, <laughs> I thought it was interesting. It was linked to Ukraine. I also found it a little bit amusing because you know these statue debates have been, um, you know, have obviously been heated. Mm. And then it just really took on a life of its own. You know, <laughs> this reader then wrote to Home. Home issued a statement. We were the ones to kind of release the statement on our Twitter account. I think we had about 1,500 different people quote tweeting it, most of whom just like socialists from everywhere around the world, like Portugal, Finland, Scotland, America, being like, what the hell is going on? Everyone assumed from Home's statement that they were about to rip it down. In fact, I don't think they were. I think they were always just going to have discussions about, you know, could we put a plaque around it or could we explain that it came from a Ukrainian village as a part of an art project or something like that? But anyway, the, the, one of the proposals from, from this reader and from a few other people on Twitter who don't like this statue and have never liked it was, should we paint it in the Ukrainian colours or something in, in solidarity? Anyway, we kicked off an, an absolutely enormous global Twitter storm about it. <laughs> Owen Jones was getting involved. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the press office at home were under massive pressure to kind of like issue another statement. They did in the end. They said... We're not planning to pull it down. We're planning to, you know, perhaps explain it a little bit better. And uh, I felt a little bit guilty for kicking off this whole um, <laughs> firestorm. But uh, okay, it's over now. You can see that uh, and follow us on Twitter as well. Follow the mill at Manchester Mill on Twitter is where we're at. If you want to spend the rest of the afternoon scrolling through all of those quote tweets on that statue. Okay, Yoshi, uh, let's have a nod for the week ahead as well and something that's going on in Greater Manchester. You know the deal. We'd like to bring you some things that are happening in and around the area and the city that you love. What's going on, Yoshi, on your radar? Well, over at the Royal Exchange, obviously in our building, where, with our office, the second most important institution in the, in the building, <laughs> they have a new sort of modern retelling of Henrik Ibsen's uh, Doll's House. It is called Nora, a Doll's House. They actually haven't had a show on at the Royal Exchange since mid-January. There's kind of been a six-week period where the theatre has gone dark. Quite a significant moment. They're back up and running, and this is a big show for them. So I'm going to be going along to that. Great, nice. Um, my nod for the week ahead starts Saturday, 12th of March. The Manchester Film Festival begins, which is happening all over the place between the 12th and the 20th. Uh, the Odeon in the centre of town, the Great Northern, and a couple of other cinemas as well. It's sort of mainly based at the Odeon, uh, the Great Northern is sort of the hub of it. 27 world premieres, 74 UK premieres, 
a whole stack of films, a bit of something for everybody, regardless of what your interests are. I, I'd also suggest, in this instance, this is what I'd like to do at these kind of like festivals, is pick something that you are not interested in. Pick something that you think you will, will be the last thing that you would ordinarily go and watch uh, and go and see and broaden your horizons. And uh, one specific nod would be for Manchester-born Natalie Kennedy, who's making her feature directorial debut with a story called Blank, a film called Blank, which is all about writer who enlists artificial intelligence and AI to help her with writer's block. It's very Black Mirror-esque. I've seen a preview of it already, and it's really brilliant, really good, really dark, quite funny in places as well, and very good from Natalie Kennedy. That's the Manchester Film Festival kicking off on Saturday. That's a lot from us. Don't forget to like and subscribe to this podcast. You can get more news like this. And leave us a rating. And leave and us a rating. Rate and rate and subscribe. And Why have none of you guys rated us? And a review as well. <laughs> yeah. Tell us how much you love us. Yeah, and you can now do that on Spotify as well. Brilliant. And you can subscribe, of course, to The Mill to get that in your email inbox. Or Become week. one of our dozens of new subscribers. Get involved. Do it. Manchestermill.co.uk is how you do that. Yoshi and I will be back on the Manchester Weekly same time next week. 